Welcome to Multicultural Minds, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness on multicultural mental health. My name is Emily Unity, and I will be your host. Thank you for being here with us and listening to voices that are often not heard. Our guest today is Ashley Kersner. She uses her background in clinical and social psychology research from Harvard, Cornell, and Boston University to design and host events that help groups of people skip the small talk and connect deeper through conversation. This podcast contains trigger warnings about culture, race, gender, and sexuality. Thank you so much for being here today, Ashley. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am Ashley Kersner, and I am the founder and CEO of Skip the Small Talk, which is a startup that I run where we basically invite strangers to talk to each other about meaningful stuff. Thank you so much for that intro. I have to say, I'm someone that is notoriously bad at small talk. (laughs) I hear that a lot. (laughs) What inspired you to start this? Yeah, so I was volunteering at a suicide hotline for a couple of years. And I started to notice over that time that sort of regardless of what people were calling in about, that people generally didn't feel comfortable talking about the real stuff going on in their life with the people Mm -hmm. they already knew. So they were happy to talk to a stranger about it. But like, you know, when I, it wasn't really so much a problem that they didn't have people in their lives who cared about them. It was just that they didn't know how to talk about this more difficult stuff. So Mm -hmm. I was sort of wondering if we could throw a bunch of people in a space and invite them to have meaningful conversations with each other, if they were all strangers, if people would be more willing to do it. And I was sort of hoping that people would treat it as almost like going to the vulnerability gym, where you could practice like do putting in reps of like, you know, having these conversations that were maybe a little more difficult, maybe a little more meaningful, showed maybe a piece of yourself that you're not used to showing to people. And if people could then take that and apply it to their everyday lives, when they went back home after the event, I was wondering if people would suddenly be more, you know, willing to have more open conversations with their roommates, with their parents, with their families, Mm -hmm. with their friends. So I hosted our first event on a whim. Um, I really, all I did was just, you know, put an event description on Facebook and Mm -hmm. let it fly. And before I knew it, we had hundreds of people interested. Mm -hmm. We had to cut it off at 50 people. Um, and it was wild. It was supposed to be a three hour long event and we had to kick people out after seven hours. It was beyond my wildest expectations. Wow. I truly thought that only like a few of my friends would show up out of like support. But yeah, we had all these strangers show up and um, people at- started asking me, when's the next one going to be? And I said, oh, this was a one time thing. That's it. And they were like, you know, you should really strongly consider doing more of these. Um, so I did. And six years later, people have kept showing up. So I've kept hosting. And now we're in cities um, all over the US. Um, we're even looking at international stuff. So yeah, it is beyond my wildest dreams and expectations. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that this is a much needed initiative because I often feel like we don't have many spaces to share how we're feeling. And so we often let things get to a crisis point before we really speak up. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's so important to provide these low barrier, accessible, inclusive and quote unquote early intervention spaces where people can sort of direct their own type of conversation and don't have to fit into any sort of model. I I wonder in, in your experience, what is the type of crowd that usually shows up? Yeah. Um, usually the kind of people who show up to these events are like the demographics tend to be mostly folks in their 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Um and the this is in part, I think, because of like who's actually showing up to a lot of the venues that we're choosing. But mm-hmm. I think it's also like 
you know, according to, I think a recent, uh, a recent survey with like a huge sample size, if I'm remembering correctly, that like Gen Z and millennials are actually the loneliest generations around mm. today. Um, and I think, you know, our minds often go to the elderly when we think of lonely folks, but um, even though Gen Zers and millennials, millennials are so well connected, we, assu- we assume that they have a lot of friends just because they have a lot of Facebook friends and a lot of Instagram mm-hmm. followers. But in reality, there's some studies that suggest that that's actually making us even lonelier. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's part of the reason why we that's a demographic that shows up. Um, in terms of like gender, it's been real. I've been sort of pleasantly surprised that it's been pretty evenly split. Um, hmm. And um, yeah, it's been nice to see that like, you know, I, I think for some reason, I remember there were folks who were like, oh, isn't it mostly dudes who show up? Or like, wouldn't you imagine mostly dudes would show up? And I don't know why there's this expectation that, you know, women and gender minorities aren't as, you know, lonely as men, but I think everyone is. Um, And also, you don't need to be lonely to show up. Like a lot of people just show up because they're new in town and want to make new friends. Mm. Or like, they're just interested in having more meaningful conversations. Because like, Mm. it isn't necessarily a therapy session. Like also, to Mm. be clear, like people are you know, all we do is we have question prompt cards with questions on them that are just a little more meaningful than you might otherwise get to talk about. So like some examples might be like, describe yourself through the eyes of someone who loves you or like, in what ways are you different from the person you were five years ago? In what ways are you the same? So it's not necessarily like, you know, talking about all your deepest, darkest fears and traumas. There is a lot of stuff that's just like fun and positive things to think to like think about and talk about. Um, but it, re- regardless of like the valence of the question, they're all designed to really like get you talking about more meaningful stuff. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's so interesting that you have such a mix of people. And I think it speaks to that general human experience of loneliness and how our need for deeper conversation is a real pervasive thing. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder how are diverse communities being involved? Yeah, I, that's such a great question. Because at first, I feel like I thought I was doing a great job at the whole diversity thing and the inclusion thing. Um, and I was like, yeah, we're not actively discriminating. Isn't that <laughs> awesome of us? And I think the bar was just so low. Like this was, it started in 2016 um, before Trump was elected. So I think a lot of us were living in a very different world, especially mm-hmm. the more privileged among us. And so we were not really aware that, you know, just not being actively discriminatory wasn't enough. So, Mm -mm. I mean, I definitely, I think it was like, definitely we got a vast, overwhelming majority of white folks at these events Mm. um, to start off with. But then as I went on, I think I learned so much. I mean, I think a big part of it was just listening to a lot of feedback. And I think, Mm. you know, I learned over time, there's so many subtle ways that we are not being inclusive and that there are like so many subtle ways that like anyone who's hosting an event cannot be inclusive. For instance, like even from like, where do you, po- where do you advertise these events? How are people mm. hearing about it? And a lot of grassroots efforts really just focus on like their own social networks, posting it to Facebook and let the algorithm do the rest of the work. Mm. And if you just do that, then only the people in your social networks are going to hear about it. And mm. it's not going to be, you know, how the heck would somebody in a completely different neighborhood, like, ever hear about an event that's happening, like, you know, two hours away? Mm. Um, if, 
there if you're not socially connected. So, I mean, I think that was one thing that um, I got a lot better at over time was learning like where to post, where to share these so that like mm. more folks can come, where to host these so that it could be, mm. um, you know, we're not just in the sort of like rich, white, really segregated neighborhoods. Like we're really trying to have a diversity of venues. Um, and also just even a lot of like culturally sensitive, you know, just being culturally sensitive, like making it okay for people to um, get up at any time. And really, you know, while mm-hmm. at most events, you assume that like, you know, oh, of course, any adult would know it's fine to get up. Like, you know, a lot of people, especially from, uh, you know, I think there are certain cultures where it, it's really frowned upon to get up mm-hmm. in the middle of somebody talking. <laughs> so being able to explicitly say, like, please do get up you know, if someone gets up, don't think twice about it. Like, you know, Mm. I really encourage you to do what you have to do has gone such a long way to make people feel more comfortable. Mm. And, you know, I think the question I really started asking myself was who comes to this and doesn't come back? Because Mm. that's that I feel like is the core of who you're not serving as much. And I think this is the thing I've seen in so many communities where there are people who you'll see like a person of color show up once and then, you know, they're like, hey, whatever happened to that one person who came that one time? Mm. And a lot of people aren't actually soliciting feedback to find out why those folks aren't coming back or like Mm. what subtle things are you doing that you might never think of that is actually turning those folks off. Um, Mm. So yeah, I think just over a lot of years of learning and doing it wrong for a long time, we've finally you know, and, you know, we're never going to be perfect at it, but I think we've done a much better job at, like, really going out of our way to solicit feedback and, like, how do we get pe- more people of color to show up? How do we get more gender minorities to show up? How do we get, like, LGBTQIA plus folks to show up? Um, so, yeah, that's definitely been a process. And, you know, it's always going to be a process, but I do think we're much further along than we were when we started. I I really love how you celebrate that like it's a constant process like you know it's not a binary of being like you reach this point and you're culturally inclusive full stop and then you don't mm-hmm. need to do anything more <laughs> so it's it's really wonderful that you share that and that you acknowledge that in the beginning it definitely wasn't coming from a place of malice or anything like totally. you, you weren't being actively discriminatory but you realize that like in order to be inclusive it does take a lot of really active action to like reach people that are really harder to reach a lot of the time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's really nice that breaking those assumptions, like you said, I, I'm definitely a person that comes from a culture that I would sit there and like politely just be uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Until- <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> I hear that a yeah. lot. Yep. <laughs> so that means a lot that you like explicitly say it's okay to get up, even though like I think rationally I understand that, but like I definitely would not unless someone said it to my face. So yeah, totally. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I wonder about like the conversations that are being had. Do you see any differences within the different cultures or identities? Say like the question of how does someone that you love see you? I think that that would significantly differ depending on like your background or your identity. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And the way that people go about answering these questions differs so much based on mm. so many different personal factors. Um, and part of the thing is like at our events, we always, always, always give people an option to pick a new question, make up their own question, go on a fun tangent um, and really make it a point. This is also something I learned over time that like, you know, really it helps to give people as much freedom as possible while still giving them some amount of like guidance that they can take mm. or leave if they want it. 
Um, but, you know, one of the more interesting cultural differences I noticed over time was originally the structure of the event was such that one person would, you would pair up and one person would talk while the other person quietly listens and the mm -hmm. other person would talk while the other person quietly listens. And then there would be some free form talking. Um, and there's a little more complexity to that, but that was like the basic uh, structure mm -hmm. of it. Um, and then, of course, you would switch partners and you would do that several more times throughout the night. But what was interesting was we found a few things. I mean, one is that I come from a Jewish background where uh, the term I uh, have heard and that I absolutely love is collaborative overlap, which um, for hmm. those not familiar is basically um, if you interrupt somebody, but in a sort of cooperative, enthusiastic way. So if I were, you know, if you were saying something and I interrupted with like, oh my God, yes, absolutely. Um, that's collaborative, that's collaborative overlapping. And so by depriving people of the opportunity to collaboratively overlap, like people felt really, a lot of folks at the events felt pretty stifled. And while of mm. course there absolutely is a great place for like, you know, one person talking at a time, I think mm. that's a great, like, you know, that's a great thing for a lot of contexts. Um, but in this particular context, I think it was frustrating a lot of folks who wanted <laughs> to, you know, collaboratively overlap or wanted to have more of a free flow conversation. And another sort of interesting factor of it was that a lot of um, <laughs> we got a lot of women saying that they felt we would give everyone the same amount of time to talk. It was about three mm -hmm. minutes each. And women would say, oh, my gosh, three minutes is so long. I ran out of content after like 30 <laughs> seconds and I felt like I was just rambling. And then men, on average, would give me the feedback, three minutes is not nearly long enough. I was just getting started. <laughs> and the demographic that was actually the most like, oh, my God, I do not know what to do with this time. This is too overwhelming, were mm. Black women. We're mm. actually the most, like, really consistently got that feedback that, like, this is way too long. I was very uncomfortable. I did not enjoy this. And, mm. you know, I feel like at the time, some part of me felt like, you know, by sort of showing people what actually evenly split conversation looks like was sort mm. of a good thing. Um, but I think, you know, if you're not used to it and you're suddenly forced to do it, it doesn't necessarily <laughs> feel great. So that's why we changed it. Now what we do is we have people talk for 10 minutes with one person and we just gently, we'll just ring a bell when you're halfway through so that in case one person has been talking that whole time, you can shift conversation to the other person. Mm. And then we let you know when you have 30 seconds left to wrap things up. And that people have seen have given us feedback that they seem to prefer that quite a bit because like it's a little more free feeling and you still have that sort of, you know, those guardrails of like, oh, if I have been talking for half the time and I didn't intend to, now I know that I can like shift this over to the other person. Um, so yeah, I learned a lot over time that I, you know, it's such a uh, my partner will often say, like, you know, there's somebody out there who this data would probably be fascinating to, but we, we haven't actually done any studies on that sort of thing. But um, <laughs> we have anecdotally noticed a lot of interesting patterns like that. I mean, I, I find it incredibly interesting and a lot of it resonates with me in terms of like, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you gave me three minutes to sit down in front of a turtle stranger and just talk, I would just panic my way and like the panic would be exponential. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love like the collaborative overlap. Like I've never heard of that term before, but it's a hundred percent something that I do particularly because I'm neurodiverse and I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh yes, that's, that's something that I love too. Um, or like, oh, yes. I totally understand what that means. <laughs> and I think for me, like that's so valuable when someone else does that to me, because I, when I'm talking, I'm like, Oh God, I'm wasting their time. They don't understand what I'm talking about. I'm just like talking absolute nonsense. But when they jump in, they're like, yes, like that's something I understand. Mm -hmm. It's so validating. And I think it's like, 
I'm not really sure about in the US whether to use the term peer support, but like mm-hmm. that's very much like what this sort of seems to me is like people just mm-hmm. meeting people on a very human level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely like what I hope it feels like. And what, you know, when people tell me that it feels that way, I'm like, ah, good, great. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of wonder where you're hoping to take this and like which which sort of priority populations, if any, do you hope to focus on? Oh, what a great question. Um, So we, in my, like what we're sort of striving toward and what I'm hoping we'll be able to do is sort of, we've experimented with this model a little bit in Boston where we have like specific events for just like, LGBTQIA plus folks and then Mm. like non-binary trans events and like Mm. sort of experimenting with like specific like identity groups because I think there's if you're from a really marginalized identity I think you often go into event spaces and you know a lot of people have like quite a bit of trauma that doesn't doesn't really get talked about about like going to a space with a lot of people and having someone misgender you having someone say something racist to you having someone like I don't know, just behave poorly to you in some way or make you feel ostracized. And so I think a lot of people come into these events with quite a bit of trauma and expecting the worst. Um, So being able to sort of create a space where there's a little more pre-existing trust, I think is so Mm. powerful. So like, Mm. that's what I've been getting such great feedback on like the LGBTQIA plus events on, um, we did a few like all women events, all non-binary events, all trans events. Um, and those have been really sweet. And I think people are just so grateful to have a space like that where there already does exist some level of trust and they're being pushed to like share or pushed is too strong a word, probably like gently encouraged to share Mm -hmm. a little bit more than they might otherwise with a group that they're already fairly comfortable with. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think more of that is hopefully in the future and now extract like also, doing more like, you know, we've gotten requests for groups for that are just for people of color. Mm. Um, We've gotten requests for like, uh, groups of, you know, mothers, Um, Mm. basically any identity that is, you know, somehow systematically oppressed, like, Mm -hmm. I I think there's space for that. And I'm hoping to do as many of those as possible. And like, I feel like the one barrier to that is on my end, I feel it's important important to have somebody hosting those events who shares Mm -hmm. that identity Mm -hmm. because it feels very much like the outsider to be like you know I would feel awful as like oh you know I'm I'm half Cuban but I'm also white and so like hosting you know a people of color event just wouldn't feel quite Mm. right to me and like you know I would want to find somebody who is like shares that identity and also is like trained in how to do this properly so that's like, those are sort of all the factors we think of as we like go forward and create more of those sort of like, you know, more specific niche mm-hmm. spaces um, for folks. Cause I think it, it's so powerful when we cre- can create something like that. And mm-hmm. I think there's so much that can go wrong in a space like that, which is why that's been a little like of a longer process mm-hmm. before we could get there. Absolutely. And thank you so much for, well, a number of things of like acknowledging the different levels of trauma that people might experience, particularly coming from like marginalized mm-hmm. identities and backgrounds. Um, but then also like the implicit safety that is like rock up to a space and know that everyone 
sort of understands where you're coming from because they've lived it. Like, uh, you don't have to give the entire backstory to the two-sentence thing that you want to share. You know, they just, yeah. they get it. Mm-hmm. I really want to celebrate, like, how important it is to have, like, peers leading that space. Like, mm-hmm. you're the person that's identified the need. And if you don't identify as part of the population, I think it's really powerful that you are not just partnering with people, but also stepping back sometimes to let, like, mm-hmm. other people facilitate the space. And I... I wish, oh, I, I don't know, that that sort of humility um, and also acknowledging like your level of privilege, I think is extremely rare in your mm. position. And I think that it's very, very undervalued. And I really want to share like how important that is to me personally. Thanks. If people want to know one thing about diverse mental health, what would you tell them? Oh, man, I, my first thought that comes to mind is, you know, I I really am struck by your word humility. And I feel like that's something that I'm just like constantly, it, it's more of a practice than a personality trait that I feel mm. like where it's just like, I think a lot of folks assume that like, oh, you just have it or you don't, where it's like, no, you just constantly have to like, actively tell yourself, this is a part where I step back. This is a mm. part where I listen. This is a part where I shut up and let somebody else talk. Mm. And um, I feel like, you know, just knowing, I guess there are a couple things. One is knowing that I I wish more people were aware that this is a ongoing process that, um, people that nobody gets perfectly. Mm. Um, and sort of if I think if more folks were able to sort of divorce failure from shame, then there would be so much, like, I think just so much of the anxiety around doing, you know, any sort of activism would be so much quieter because Mm. I know I I almost wish people would throw themselves at failure a little more often Mm. um, and sort of give themselves more opportunities to fail so that they can also learn how do you get it? How do you write? How do you do it better? Like, how do Mm. I apologize Mm. properly? How do I like, you know, do better going forward? Because if I hadn't started Skip the Small Talk and done a kind of crappy job on a lot of this, <laughs> which, you know, if I could press a button, I would absolutely wish that I'd gotten it right from the beginning. But mm. given that that wasn't an option at the time, like, mm-hmm. I am so grateful that I went for it and let myself, you know, learn over time. And mm. like, it was only once other people, you know, I, I went to other folks who were able to give a lot of compassion to me and be like, look, it's a learning process. It's okay. Where I was finally able to make changes that I think were Mm. really, you know, impactful. And I don't know, I think that's where the real work starts. The real work starts where your shame ends and you're Mm. able to not make it about you. You're able to not make your impact or on people a reflection of how good or bad you are as a person. So I think that is one thing I wish a lot of folks knew. And I think on the other side of things, I also which folks knew that, um, you know, you can't really understand, ever fully understand an experience that is not yours. Like, mm-hmm. I think there have been so many times where I've thought to myself, oh, okay, great. I've talked to like three people of this particular background and now I feel like I get it. I've noticed the patterns between what they say and I totally get it. And I just think that there's no way to totally get it unless you are experiencing it. And the next best thing is to expose yourself to a ton of it and just talking to a huge number of people, getting a lot of feedback. Um, and that is the closest, I think, that you can get of understanding an experience that isn't yours. Mm. Um, and just also understand that you're never going to fully get it and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you don't need to fully understand something in order to respect it. And you don't need to understand mm-hmm. why someone is asking for a particular accommodation for you to just trust that like that they know what they need best. 
Mm-hmm. Let me let me provide that. So I think I'm sort of cheating and giving you two uh, two big things that I wish people could know. But oh, yes. uh, <laughs> fantastic! <laughs> I have a really big smile on my face um (laughs) objectively you've created this amazing initiative where people feel really safe to explore deeper conversations that we often don't get those dedicated spaces in like just regular life so it's it's objectively a fantastic thing but in doing so you've also acknowledged that like sometimes you could have been more inclusive and you didn't do it with specific intent or maliciousness but you acknowledge that like there's always ways that you could improve and I think that that's something that is it's so important to share is that even though we have the best intentions at heart like we can still be less great than we can be and instead of seeing mm-hmm. it as like a point of shame we can see it as an opportunity to improve together and I yeah I just really really love that and I love the tips that you shared so beautifully but <laughs> no no honestly it's ah it, I, I I've just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation um oh. if people wanted to <laughs> reach out to you what's the best way for them to do so yeah well if you want to check out our website it's uh skip the small um also if I've played my google cards right hopefully you can just google <laughs> skip the small talk and we'll show up um, but feeling that your folks are also welcome to just reach out to me directly at ashley at skip the small talk.com. Um, I read every single email and even if I take uh, a couple days to respond to it, I will respond to it. <laughs> amazing. Thank you so much again for your time and for starting this amazing initiative. And I, I do have to say, like being in Australia, I think we sorely need something like this. So I'm really glad that you're looking at international options. Yeah, I would love to have an Australia branch. Here's hoping. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much again for your time. Yeah, thanks so much, Emily. This has been awesome. Thank you for listening to Multicultural Minds a podcast dedicated to raising awareness of multicultural mental health. If you want to find out more about us, please visit our website at www.multiculturalminds.org. Thank you again for being here with us and listening to voices that are often not heard.